Well, thank you very much, Graham, for your very kind invitation. And uh, it is very, very good to be, to be in St. Stephen's. Of course, when you go to a new place to preach, you uh, always have some concerns. Chiefly, will the PA system work? <laughs> and the story is told of the chap whose PA system ground down in the middle of the uh, sermon. So uh, he said, uh, would you put your hand up if you, uh, if you can't hear me? And so someone put a hand up. And he said, can you not hear me? And he said, oh yes, I can hear you. But I've heard you before, so I'll happily change places with someone who can't. <laughs> I, I don't know how many of you have ever heard me before. I can think of a couple. Um, but here we are. Memorials. I wonder how you want to be remembered. Some people do get at least something to say what sums up their life. You've got loads to this guy all around the place. Back in my home city of London, we've got this one. Sir Christopher Wren. And it being England, the tribute is in Latin, but translated it says, if you seek his memorial, look around you. It's a great way to remember a life. I don't know how you want to be remembered or summed up. Sometimes you think, you know, there are some people in the Bible who seem to get it better than others. I mean, nobody says, Paul the murderer. Do they? I mean, depending on your churchmanship, you might get St. Paul, you might get Paul the apostle, you might get Paul the missionary, you might get Paul the theologian. I can't remember the last sermon where I heard Paul the murderer. Pretty much the same with David, not quite the same level of respect. But King David, David the adulterer, well, when we're preaching about David and Bathsheba, I guess that gets in there, but it's not the thing you say every time you open a psalm. But this lady, and I'm preaching on Rahab this morning, it's page 214 if you've got the church Bibles, this one, three occasions out of four, she's Rahab the prostitute. The only place where that epithet is dropped is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, where she's just Rahab. But in Joshua chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 11, the great role of heroes of the faith, and in James chapter 2, where James is trying to explain that uh, being justified by faith doesn't simply mean giving mental assent to a load of doctrine, it actually means being transformed in the forgiveness and grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In those, she's simply Rahab the prostitute. Now, if you have an old Bible, and this one doesn't, but I think the one next door did at the 8 o'clock service, you get after the word prostitute a little letter, a little cross-reference, and at the bottom it says innkeeper. No. That simply isn't what the word means, uh, either in the Old Testament Hebrew or in the New Testament Greek. It means prostitute. Now, it may well be that if you read the rest of the story, she wasn't only a prostitute, she's actually a prostitute who'd uh, gone up in the world a bit. Perhaps she was a, a madam. Did she run the brothel? She certainly owns the house. And it appears that actually she is the only breadwinner in the wider family. 
She doesn't have a husband, she, there's no children mentioned, but there are parents and there are brothers and sisters and there are their children. Here is someone, for whatever reason, that's what she'd become. That's how she's summed up. And yet she is so much more than that. But the first thing I want us to get hold of about Rahab from this story is this. That there is no place in our view of the world for Pharisees and hypocrites. There's no place in our view of the world for Pharisees and hypocrites. Now, I know that I'm preaching in one of the best-taught dioceses in the Anglican Communion, so I'm not going to try and reteach my collective grandparents uh, or actually looking out at some of you grandchildren uh, to suck eggs. That, that's not what this is about. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that unless you realize that, you can't rejoice in the Jesus who reaches down and saves you. It's just that sometimes, many Christians I know have this league table of the respectability of sins. I may know that my besetting sin is gossip. Hey, but that's got to be better than the bloke down the road who's addicted to internet pornography. And that's got to be better than the bloke who's thrown over his marriage vows and had an affair. And that's got to be better than, well, you can fill in the gaps. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in England, every prison has a hierarchy of offence. The white-collar fraudsters look down on the blue-collar muggers. The muggers look down on those whose thieving has had violence. The violent criminals look down on the murderers and everybody looks down on the sex offenders. In other words, it is in human nature that we make ourselves feel better by thinking that there are other people worse than us. And that even we good evangelical Christians can sometimes act as if we know it's justification by grace through faith, but actually, if it were justification by works, I'd probably have a better chat than, uh, chance than the bloke next to me. Well, Paul says he's the worst of sinners. I have this uh, thing in my mind's eye of a five-minute chat with St. Paul in heaven, partly so that he can tell me the bits of his epistles I've got wrong, and partly so I can say to him, I just want to perhaps take slight issue with you on this worst of sinners bit, because actually I think all of us are. Or I am anyway. Because if the ground really is level at the foot of the cross, if it is true that we all need the cross of Christ, who am I to look down on anybody else? Who am I to say that the grace of God cannot reach down and save them? Because sometimes we have the idea that, you know, they are simply not the religious type. My mate on Sundays is on the golf course. And it wouldn't really matter if it were Alpha, Christianity Explored, or some other course. I just can't see him or her ever being that interested. They're just not the type. 
I wanted, but I wasn't sure I could get away with it, so I didn't. I wanted at this moment to flash a picture of King's Cross at night on the screen. Not my King's Cross railway station, but your King's Cross. They're actually thinking of my King's Cross. There's a bit of a red light district around that as well. Because it is so easy for us, isn't it, to find ourselves looking down on others or imagining they're not going to come to Jesus because, well, do you know what? They're just not the type. So as I didn't quite have the courage to do that, I thought that summed it up. Where Jesus is asked to confirm the death sentence on the woman taken in adultery. And he says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. We wouldn't have picked up stones to stone her. So how can I, in my outlook on mission and evangelism, seem to write people off because they're simply not like me? Or they're not middle class. Or they're not educated. Or they wouldn't be summed up with a memorial that says, Mary the brain surgeon. But it might be Mary the battered wife. It might be Mary the sex worker. It might be, well, you fill in the gaps. But either the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to reach into the very lowest points of our society, or it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jesus hangs on the cross for the sin of the world, preparing for that great shout, not of desolation, but of victory, in Greek tetelestai, it is fully paid for. As he endures the agony of the Trinity broken asunder, and the weight of the dark cloud of human sin placed four square on him. He brings to faith a terrorist dying on the cross next to him, and the means of his death and the words he speaks brings to faith the centurion who provides over his demise. Both executioner and executed are brought to faith. My guess is that as we think of our five people for whom we might pray, neither the hardest bitten soldier from some army, nor the terrorist awaiting their execution would be those most naturally at the top of our list. And yet they were for Christ. They were for Christ. So in our look at the world, the story of Rahab shows us absolutely straight that of all the people in Jericho to whom the spies in the sovereign grace of God could have gone, they didn't go to the mayor, they didn't go to the medic, they certainly didn't rock up at the Jericho Hilton and give their passports in, they rocked up at the local brothel where questions wouldn't be asked and the prostitute takes them in and finds the grace and salvation of God. Now, I find that transforms my worldview 
of those whom Jesus is calling to himself. So that's the, that's the first that's the first thing from Rahab this morning. But what does Rahab do then in her, in her coming to faith? Well, she understands and believes God's word. Oh, it's difficult to, to, to understand that, but what does she say? Well, she says, look, I've watched what God's doing. And she goes back 40 years to the Red Sea. She's done her homework. She knows the history of these spies and their people. She knows how against all the odds, every time this rabble is up against it, even when they deny and reject what their own God is doing, God steps in and does something graciously miraculous and they get victory. This is a God whose plan cannot be withstood. It'd be far better to be on his side than against him. So she makes the choice between her own king of Jericho and the king of kings and takes side with God. So when the king sends messengers, hey, I've heard that you've got the spies. Spies? No. Not here. They went. Now, is she lying through her teeth? Yes. Does Scripture condemn her for lying through her teeth? No, actually. She saves the spies in the plan of God and she chooses to serve the King of Kings, not her own culture. May I just pause? This isn't in my notes, but it seems to me that all over the world, Christians are being asked to baptize what the culture finds acceptable in all sorts of different areas. Rahab shows us that when it's a choice between the government or the king of the day and the king of kings, that isn't actually much of a choice. It has to be the king of kings to whom we bow, not the prevailing culture. We love the people in our culture, but we do not baptize the things that the transient culture happens to want us to bless. That's not what the word of God is about. So Rahab trusts God's salvation and chooses to serve the king of kings, not others who would vie for first place in her life. And she enters God's covenant. Now, I hope you got that. It's not being fanciful. It's not being all kind of gooey and fuzzy. I think it is here, and we just need to see it. They come up with a plan. Our lives for your lives. She lets them down by a rope through the window. They escape. It's all good. The army will attack. What's going to be the signal that the people in that particular house are to be spared? Forty years earlier in the Passover, it was the blood of the Passover lamb. And in every house in Egypt, something died. 
either the tragedy of the firstborn son or the symbol of what would be fulfilled in its reality when the Son of God hangs on the cross, of which our beautiful opening song reminded us so poignantly. It's the scarlet sign of the substitute's death. And those who entered into the covenant sign, those who took shelter in God's sovereign way out, were spared and saved. So why do the spies give her a scarlet cord? Of all the colors of the rainbow to pick, it's not being fanciful to say they knew what they were doing, is it? Our fathers were passed over as they trusted the saving plan of our redeeming God. You tie this in your window and we will pass by you. And so she does. Which is exactly why, going on, I had that reading from my favorite book in the whole of Scripture. God's wonderful art gallery of Revelation. And every time you walk through its pages, you notice new brush strokes and fresh colors. And it says that the multitude have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it doesn't matter whether you are amongst the people of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt or whether you are amongst the people now who have trusted by God's grace in the death and resurrection of his son, or whether you're a Jericho prostitute deciding to follow the king of kings, not the king of the city, it is only the scarlet thread that saves you. There is nothing else. The way the cross works is backwards and forwards. Everything else is a type and shadow. The real thing is a Friday afternoon and the death of the Son of God. It's, by the way, the reason I took the risk of putting a full cross on the screen. I'm well aware that that is incomplete and it's the empty cross that reminds us of the resurrection. But sometimes we are in such a hurry to get to Easter Day, we forget the Good Friday bit. At least we do back home. And it is the blood of the Lamb. Whether that was the Passover or the cross or the sign of the scarlet cord in which we take refuge. We are one in our equality of need with Rahab. We are one in our salvation in Christ with Rahab. Praise God, we will one day be one in the glory of heaven with Rahab. And that's what this story is about, it seems to me. You, you know that. Did you have that here as well as in England? That, that, that Catholics say the Pope says, and evangelicals say it seems to me? I think that's probably... No, um, <laughs> Of course, actually, we say the Bible says, and then we say it seems to me. Um, but you know what I mean. 
It is actually about realizing that our redemption is one and the same with the heroes of faith. We have no right to look down on where the next hero of faith is coming from. What we do have the command to do is to reach out to them. So here's Rahab. She's made her choice. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. She has entered the covenant. But what else? What else? Well, most preachers preach in threes, don't they? So I couldn't really resist it either. She takes responsibility. She takes responsibility. She doesn't say, I'm scared. I want God to save me. What do I have to do? She says, I've got brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces and a mum and dad, and actually I want them all saved. There is no selfishness in her deciding to follow the King of Kings. There is a breadth of welcome for those for whom she feels responsible. Now, yes, I know we have an equal responsibility for the whole world, of course, but actually this is about starting somewhere. It's why one of the things this Thy Kingdom Come initiative has been doing, is it's given out mugs that says, pray for five. He could have said pray for 5,000, 5 million, but actually it says pray for five. Billy Graham, that great uh, evangelist, said the greatest reason people become Christians, humanly speaking, is the lives of the Christians they know. He then went on to say the greatest reason people don't become Christians, humanly speaking, is the lives of the Christians they know. Which is kind of scary, isn't it? Because I'm very aware that there are a whole load of people in Sydney for whom the Christian they know best is sitting in front of me. And if that's scary, I'm well aware that there are some people back in Somerset for whom Bob is the Christian they know best. And that's really frightening. Here is the challenge. Am I really praying my socks off in a way that Rahab showed imperfectly, but it's there, is a taking of responsibility to be part of God's way of calling home others? Now, I know that you get regularly told we have to share our faith. That's great. Rock on. One way you can start that is dead practical and straightforward and that there is... You look, look, you don't have to see me ever again so I can say this. That there is no conceivable excuse why everyone shouldn't go out of this building and go do it is take on five people that you're going to pray for. Now... Please, if God says take on six to you, he wins, I don't. But start with five and spend the next 12 months praying 
daily for them. Write their names down. Stick it in your Bible. Pin it to the fridge with initials that other people won't recognize. But find a way that you remember that you're praying for these people so that like Rahab, you begin to take responsibility. We begin to take responsibility for saying we want to see others inside this covenant community. Rahab the prostitute. Do you know, bless her, I'm glad the scripture keeps that tag because it does remind us just how deep the blood of Jesus flows, doesn't it? The murderer Paul, the adulterer David, the prostitute Rahab, the complete failure Bob, or however else you would describe yourself. The love of the Father, the blood of the Son, the power of the Spirit, is great enough to bring us home. And if us, then those for whom he leads us to pray. That is not, it seems to me, that is what my more Catholic colleagues would say as they finish their sermon, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the Baptists say, and the people of God said, 